Well, this morning, good segue is we're looking at Matthew chapter 8 and 9. So if you'd open your Bible, we're not going to have a specific Bible reading this morning because I'm going to try to take us through uh, these two chapters quickly. Uh, Matthew 8 and 9. And if you don't have a Bible, the, the blue Bible in front of you, page 813, is uh, there for you to use. And I want you to have that open. For the last five months, we've been going through this famous sermon, Jesus's most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And so uh, he's delivered the sermon in his just outside of his hometown, which is called Capernaum. That was his adult hometown. Also was Peter's hometown. And it's on the northwest side. If you think of a clock around the Sea of Galilee, it's at like 11 o'clock. And it's a small fishing village. And just outside of the village, there's a mount. It's not really a mountain. Um, and that's where uh, it's believed that Jesus delivered this particular sermon. And this morning, I want to look what happened after the sermon. So he sits there and he teaches these two chapters in one sitting. And then he gets up and moves away. And I'm asking myself, well, well what happens next? How, I want to try to connect Jesus's words with Jesus's walk. I, I want to try to connect what he taught to, to who he touched. And so I'm looking as I move past chapter seven into chapter eight. How does that happen? Now, when you look back in uh, chapter uh, five, you remember that the, the Sermon on the Mount began with the Beatitudes. And maybe an easy way to remember this is this is basically the attitude of a person in the kingdom of heaven or the the character qualities of somebody who's in the kingdom of heaven. And he talks about those for the first 12 verses. But then in chapter five, verse 13, he shifts and he shifts from attitude to action. So he first talks about just what's your your character. And then he talks about how does that come out in action if you're a person who's repented and you've entered into the kingdom of heaven. You've taken Christ up on his offer. When he says repent and enter the kingdom of heaven. You've entered in. And you have to have a certain character quality. You have to have a certain attitude. Poor in spirit, you, remember, you might remember. But then you get in and you say, well, how do I behave? What are my actions? And for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, from 513 to the end, he basically unpacks in paragraph after paragraph different actions that we would have. He talks about anger and lust, integrity, marriage, loving your enemy, generosity, prayer, anxiety. He just peels off one thing after another, which we've done over the last five months. But the very first action Jesus talks about is not any of those. The very first action he talks about is how are you supposed to live now that you're in the kingdom of heaven connected to people who are outside of the kingdom of heaven? Just turn back with me. Chapter five, verse 13. You'll remember this analogy. So he comes off the attitudes, the the character qualities that push put you into the kingdom of heaven And then the very first bit of instruction is about how you act towards people who are outside. You are, verse 13, the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So you are the salt, verse 14, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill 
which cannot be hidden. So the very first thing Jesus does to tell the person who's entering into the kingdom of heaven by God's grace is to say, I never want you to get very disconnected from the kingdom that you've come out of. I need you to understand how you're supposed to have a relationship with the rest of the world. It's not like you come in and you just get lost in the kingdom of heaven. You're supposed to have an intentional relational relationship with uh, the people outside of the church. And uh, he's very specific about his choice of words. He uses salt and light. And we talked about this, but I just want to remind you three quick things about salt and light. First, the, the fact that he chooses salt and light tells us that he understands the world is in trouble. Because he describes the world as decaying and in darkness. Salt prevents decay. Light prevents darkness. So the first thing Jesus tells us just by using the illustration is that the world itself is in a state of decay and in a state of darkness. The second thing he tells us is that when he says you are the salt and you are the light, he's talking about you all, the disciples. And and then he's going to connect it to the church. We are the salt. We are the light. So the local church is the hope of the world. I I just cannot say that strongly enough. The local church is the hope of the world. Not a politician. Not a program. Not a party. Not, not, not anything else that we might say, if just this thing could happen, then the world would be okay. The only thing that God has given to the world to prevent decay and darkness is the church. And the church, the local church, is part of his plan to stop decay and darkness where it exists, where you live. So, first of all, the world is in trouble. Secondly, the staggering potential of the local church, that we're the salt, we're the light of the world. And third, the salt and light expends itself. Salt and, salt and light expend itself and extend itself, you might say. So salt was primarily not something you would add to the food to get the taste right. Salt was meant for, for, to prevent decay. So there's no refrigeration, so you have to salt your meat in order for it to not decay. And so what God is saying, or what Jesus is saying, is, hey, the world is in a state of decay. And you've got to go attach yourself to the decay, or else it's going to keep in decay. So you've got to purposely attach yourself to people or things that are in a state of decay. You've got to be a light. You've got to be like a a city on the hill. You're not going to hide yourself under the basket. No, you're going to extend out into dark places. So salt and light extends itself. Now, let's fast forward to the end of the sermon and the beginning of of Jesus's movement off the mount. This is verse this is chapter eight, verse one. When Jesus came down from the mountain. All right, so now I'm leaning in as the reader. I'm asking myself, okay, the very first thing he said is, let's make sure you have a good connection, the right kind of connection with a dark and a decaying world. And now Jesus is moving off the mountain. And I'm asking myself, will his words match his walk? Will his teaching match people that he touches? That's what's in my mind as I move towards chapter 8. And so now we're going to go through chapter 8 and 9. It's going to be like a highlight reel. 
I don't have time to unpack every piece of it. I just want us to see the the flow through 8 and 9, and then it's going to end in a challenge not only to the people in the New Testament, but a challenge for each of us here. First of all, let's notice the first thing that happens, chapter 8, 1 through 3. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, behold, pay attention, first person he meets is what? A leper. I mean, you want to talk about somebody's in a state of decay. It's, it's a leper. A leper came up to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Leprosy is a, a skin disease. And if you have it for very long, it, it typically affects your limbs. Your fingers, your hands, your, your toes, your feet. It's where it typically attaches itself. It, it, it degrades nerve endings. And what happens is you become very uh, prone to infection. And because you become prone to infection, you get a lot of infection on your hands and your feet. And if you have the disease long enough, your limbs fall off your body. So lots of lepers have stumps. Here, here is a person who's in physical decay. You can see it. But not only are, are they in physical decay, this leper, he's also in a, in a relational decay. Because of, because of the leprosy, there, there are specific instructions, because it's contagious, of how to deal with people who get leprosy. And Leviticus chapter 13 tells us, the person with such an infectious disease must, listen, cover the lower part of his face, And wherever he goes, he's supposed to cry out, unclean, unclean. And you've got to shout it out so the people that know that you're coming, they, they can get away so they don't get near you. And he must live alone. He must live outside the camp. So so here's a person not just in physical decay, he's in relational decay. If he does have any contact with anybody else, it's other lepers. He lives outside the camp. He, He lives alone. And so the very first person Jesus meets, the first person kneeling before him is a person in decay. I think that's very significant from what he's just taught us. It would have been unlawful for the leper even to run up to Jesus to get that close. And I'm just imagining that this crowd is coming down the mountain and here comes a man going, unclean, unclean, unclean. And he's running towards Jesus and the crowd parts like the Red Sea. And he falls before Jesus's feet. Notice in verse three, what does Jesus first do before anything else? He reaches out and he touches the man. Just like salt. The very first thing Jesus wants to know, wants this man to know, is I'm purposefully attaching myself to your decay. Before anything else happens, I'm going to attach myself to you. I'm going to spread out my hands and take care of your decay. Now, where does that happen most prominently? 
A couple of years later, Jesus is going to spread out his hands for people in spiritual decay. So the very first person Jesus comes in contact with is this leper. And he's connecting himself to people in decay. And he's just told us, that's your role now. That's our role as the church. We're supposed to purposely seek out people in decay, and we've got to put our hands on them. Second, second thing we see here, Jesus enters the town of Capernaum. He's come down the mountain. This leper's come into him, up to him. He's healed the man. Then he comes into town, verses 5 and 6. When he entered Capernaum, this is Jesus' adult hometown, a centurion came forward, appealing to Jesus, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And Jesus says, well, I'll come and heal him. I'll come into your home and heal him. Second person Jesus encounters, a Roman centurion. Now, this is a hated person by the Jewish people. Here is a man who's an invader. He's an occupier. He's the person the Jewish people hate. He's the whole reason they're not in power. And yet this man's coming up to Jesus saying, hey, can you help me? And you can imagine the crowd just being like, now, maybe the leper, but we're not going to help our enemy. This guy is this guy is as far out from where we need to be as possible. In fact, you remember just in the, the store in the in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember when Jesus says, go the extra mile? That the whole illustration is a Roman soldier to come up could come up to any Jewish citizen and say, hey, I've got some luggage, I've got some armor, and you need to carry it one mile for me. And Jesus says, you should carry it two miles for that person. And this was an embarrassing, hated thing by the Jewish people. And here, this man comes up to Jesus of all people and says, can you help me? And stunningly, Jesus says, I'll go to your home. Now, the Jewish people who are part of the crowd would have been, this is unthinkable. You don't reach out and touch a leper. You don't invite yourself into the enemy home. But do you see what Jesus is doing? He's telling his disciples, he's showing his disciples what he just told his disciples. Guys, I don't want you to ever be very far away from darkness and decay. And you're going to have to reach out. And you're going to have to invite yourself into these kinds of places. And it's exactly what Jesus is doing. So the thing that Jesus is going to make sure here, he's not going to allow any physical barriers to get between him and other people. And he's not going to allow any ethnic barriers to get between him and other people. The, the Roman citizen had a totally different culture. And Jesus is saying, I'm not going to let ethnicity be a barrier to me being in part in your home. Martin Luther King, April 16, 1963. He writes, he's arrested and he's put into the Birmingham jail in Alabama. And he writes what are now famous, a famous letter, letter from a Birmingham jail. And he's writing it to a group of white southern pastors who think that Martin Luther King is, is pushing his agenda into the culture. 
And he's saying, you know, you know, change is going to happen. You should relax. You shouldn't be here. You shouldn't stir anything up. And instead of attaching themselves like salt and light, these pastors decided to hide themselves underneath a bushel and not not attach themselves. And Martin Luther King has a perfect response, a Sermon on the Mount-like response. And this is what he says. Listen, we will have to repent in this generation not merely for the hateful words and actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. Human progress never rolls in on wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts of men willing to be co-workers with God. What a great quote. See, you have to say, I'm going to be a willing co-worker with God. I'm going to make it my tireless effort to attach myself to things that are in decay, to things that are darkness. And I'm going to have to overcome physical barriers and I'm going to have to overcome ethnic barriers, but I'm not going to let anything stand in the way between me and attaching the gospel to somebody's life. I'm so glad there was somebody in Will's life who cared enough to do something that was very simple and say, hey, it's been helpful for me. It's kind of like the come and see. Just, would you come and see? See, they attached themselves and said, can I just introduce you to something that's been helpful to me? What a, what a great testimony. What a great witness. It, it, it just begs the question, are we willing co-workers with God? Chapter 8, verse 28 Later that same day, Jesus enters Peter's house. Peter's married. He has a mother-in-law that lives in his house, and she's sick, and she gets healed by Jesus. And then quickly, news begins to spread about the, the man who's healing. And as you might imagine, the whole town comes in. And in verse 18, 818, basically Jesus says, Hey, guys, it's getting crowded. Let's get in the boat and go to the other side. Now, now, what we don't understand, because we don't really understand the geography that well, is how radical the instructions themselves were. Because when Jesus asked the disciples, the Jewish disciples who lived in Capernaum, let's go to the other side, these Jewish guys didn't go to the other side. And, and everyone understands this. The, the other side was Greek territory, different culture. We stay on our side, they stay on their side. Now, we understand this, do we not? Every city. There are places that are just a few miles away, and that's the other side. And we don't feel comfortable on the other side. We don't go to the other side. That's not where our home is. So when Jesus just says, guys, let's get out of here, they're probably like, yeah, let's go to the other side. Uh, no, no, you know, we're not interested in the other side. That's not where we feel comfortable. But again, Jesus is trying to say, you've got to purposely attach yourself to decaying places. You've got to purposely extend yourself into dark places. And I love what happens. They get to the other side, the first person they meet. Two demon-possessed men come running from a graveyard, probably no clothes on, chains around their hands and wrists that they've broken off, and they're just yelling, going like this towards Jesus. Oh, that's the other side. 
And in Mark, it has a great little passage about this. It says, and Jesus got out of the boat to meet this man. Now, I don't know what actually happened, but it sounds like the disciples didn't get out of the boat. I'm just imagining the disciples going, uh, Jesus, you know what? We're going to see you on our side. Good luck. We don't go to the other side when, when nude men coming out of a graveyard come yelling at us. We're not interested in, you know, having a conversation with them. But this is exactly what Jesus is asking. The, 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 the example is supposed to be so extreme, you couldn't possibly miss a leper. You couldn't possibly miss a Roman soldier. You couldn't possibly miss a demon-possessed man about what it's supposed to be for the church to be salt and light. You couldn't possibly miss it. These are not all people who look like you. These are people who are very different from you. And you've got to purposely put yourself in the way of, attach, be involved with, extend yourself into these kinds of places. It, it, it has a little bit of a feel like what they do at First Fruits. The First Fruits ministry that ministers to the homeless. They, they purposely go out to places that you and I might prefer to just walk on by. And they attach themselves to those people. And say, how can I help you physically? How can I help you spiritually? I wish I had time to tell you the story about John Patton. Probably a name you don't know. He lived in the late 1800s. And he risked his life by going to islands in the South Pacific. And the islands were inhabited by cannibals. And about 30 or 40 years before he arrived at this particular island, two other missionaries had come to this island and they'd been killed and eaten by the inhabitants that they were trying to evangelize. Imagine this is your task. And he's back in London and he says, I think it's time to make another attempt. The, the blood of the martyrs is part of the highway for God's gospel. These people who have already got onto the island, small as their effort may have been, it's like a beachhead and it's up to us to go. We can't wait for them to come to us. And he stands up at a meeting with some of his elders and he says, I'm going to go back to these islands. And one of the elders explodes, a Mr. Dickinson. This is what he says. The cannibals, you will be eaten by cannibals. I love Patton's response. Mr. Dickinson, you are advanced in years now. And you are soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. <laughs> I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day of my resurrection body, we will rise fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Wow. I mean, I, that makes me want to go, yes! I want to get behind somebody who has that kind of passion to say, look, even if I get eaten alive, you're going to be eaten alive somehow, right? Worms or these people. What difference is it going to make 10 billion years from now? None. So expend yourself. Extend yourself out. 
Now, now some of us aren't going to be the person at the tip of the spear. But there's a few of us. You might be in middle school. You might be in high school. You might be a college person. That if you would be the person who would say, let's move in this Godward direction. Tons of people would follow in after you. You you can't miss it. It can't be missed. Jesus' first instructions is, guys, I don't want you to forget about the darkness that exists in the world. And the way you're going to interface with it is you have to attach yourself to things that are in a state of decay or in darkness. And when you go to the other side, it has, it has risks. Last illustration. I don't have time to talk about the healing of the bleeding woman or the dead girl. Instead, I just want to focus in on Matthew, the writer of the gospel, and his particular calling, verse 9 in chapter 9. Jesus comes back to Capernaum. He passes on from there. He saw a man called Matthew. Matthew's a tax collector. He's sitting in a booth, and Jesus comes up to him and says, follow me. And Matthew rose and followed him, and Jesus reclined at the table in the house, and behold, meaning pay attention, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees, the super holy people, saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Do you see what's happening here? The, the, the super holy people are saying, no, once you get religious, you get away from the world. You completely detach from the world. You're not supposed to get connected with those people. And here Jesus is having a meal with the tax collectors and sinners. The, the tax collectors were some of the most hated people. They were, they were traitors. They were greedy traitors. Jewish people who are working for the government. And you know they're always associated with sinners, drunkards, and prostitutes. They, these are the bottom of the barrel. And yet Jesus is saying, I'm diving to the bottom of the barrel because I've only come for people who are sick. I haven't come for anybody else. I am not here to rescue people who don't think they're in decay. I'm only here for people who understand they're in a state of decay. And the Pharisees never understood that they were in a state of decay. And so they never got Jesus. But I'm guessing the leper, the Roman centurion, the demon-possessed man, and Matthew great, made great missionaries. Why? They understood they were in a state of decay, and Jesus come and touched them. So whenever they looked out, they had compassion. They understood what it was like to be in that particular spot. And notice, and here's where I want to close, this, this final challenge, the very end of the chapter. Jesus went throughout all the cities. This is verse 35. Teaching, proclaiming the gospel, healing diseases. Verse 36. When he saw the crowds, notice he had compassion because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. And then he says this to his disciples and to Christ's community church. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. First of all, have compassion. 
This might be the place that most of us need to start. Just start with a heart of compassion instead of a heart of judgmentalism. One uh, church, a guy who's big in church movement, a guy named Ed Stetzer, he says this, I'm convinced you can't war with people and win people at the same time. See, we live in a culture that's very contentious. And we live in places that are like the culture war. And he's saying if you're going out and you're waging the culture war, you're not going to be able to win those people at the same time. You can't be warring with people and winning them at the same time. You have to have compassion on them. You have to attach yourself to them. Not become like them, but attach yourself to them. So first, just pray for a heart of compassion. Secondly, pray earnestly. Pray that God would would move in the hearts of people to be salt and light. Uh, Just last week, uh, Tara and Spence and I had... Uh, lunch with Benny Matthews, the, the guy who leads Alpha Ministries, our ministry that we support to India. And, and he's come back saying, hey, I want 1,000 visits, messengers, I think he called them. I want messengers to go into 1,000 villages and they don't know the gospel. That's, that's his goal. 1,000. I said, well, what, what's going to take? First thing, people who would pray about it. Then we have to have the people who would be willing to go. And then we have to have some money behind those people because they're going to know how, they're going to need to know what to say when they get there and then how to get there and stuff to give the people when they arrive. These are 1,000 villages who never heard of Jesus Christ. He says, I need $400. I need a person. I need people who would pray. Pray earnestly that the money, the people could come together and be met at a village of people who've never heard about Jesus. Finally, notice then it says send. Verse 38, send people. Find a way to go yourself or be part of sending people. Not everybody has, no, not everybody's going to be John Patton. That's okay. John Patton had people who sent him to this South Sea Island. That's okay. And you can be part of that. You can just say, hey, in, in, in a couple of weeks, there's going to be uh, little envelopes you can take home for Romania. And you can help send a kid who's never heard about the gospel to a camp that they're going to hear about the gospel. You can be a part of what, what we're doing at Alpha. On the back of your bulletin there's listed all the ministries that we connect with here at christ community church and you may say hey i want to be a part of something i want to be on a team but i can't go do it by myself so you you, here's the name here's the information you want to connect with high school students you want to connect with the homeless you want to connect with kids in romania you want to connect with people who don't know anything about jesus in india it's wide open to you you contact those people it is our responsibility Whatever problems you see in the world, it's not Donald Trump's responsibility. It's not any party's responsibility. It's not the mayor or the governor or anyone else. The hope of the world is the local church. But for the world to have any hope, the local church must attach itself 
to people who are decaying and extend itself into dark places. Let's pray. Lord, this is uh, easy to say, easy to see, hard to do. Sometimes it's hard to have this meaningful relationship with a person in the office that's that lives in spiritual decay. Or the neighbor. Or the person that I'm in the classroom with. It's easy to see it, but then to step in, to have the courage to step in, to be a person that's used by you, it can be so difficult, so frightening. But I pray that you would, uh, by your spirit, encourage encourage our souls to, to find ways that we might be a part of what you're calling us to do. We, we cannot mistake what you did after the Sermon on the Mount. May we follow in your footsteps. And whatever role that you may have given us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.